And the key point here really is that when I say that they're decentralized, what I mean is, you know, they're truly leaderless, right? And so I actually can say I have many sources who are people from developing countries who have had their lives changed from things like NFTs, not even Bitcoin. It's like even things as recent as NFTs. And so now you're the bank. I mean, anyone could be a bank and make interest with their extra cash. It's, it's quite amazing. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to the latest episode of the Earthlings podcast, where we explore what it's like to be human in the 21st century and all the challenges and opportunities that face us collectively and how we can choose the best timeline for ourselves. And today we are going to talk about cryptocurrency and blockchain, two technology innovations that are poised to potentially transform how we do a lot of our day-to-day activities, especially in the financial world. So I'm one of your co-hosts, Lisa Ann Pinkerton, and I support companies that are involved in the energy transition with uh, gaining media coverage uh, with my PR firm and also support my ladies in the space with a nonprofit, Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. And with me today, as always, is my co-host. And I'm Christian Roseland. I'm a writer, consultant, and energy wonk. And I'm fascinated today to talk about crypto. You know, it's something that has emerged in the last few years and is really taking the world by storm. Already more than 100 million people globally own some form of cryptocurrency, and that includes at least 14% of Americans. Mm -hmm. So this brings up questions like, will cryptocurrency be the new money? Yes. And what does that mean? Yes. Okay, Lizanne already has an answer for that one. That's what I get for asking these rhetorical questions. And, you know, I, but I still, I'm still not clear on what that will mean for all of us. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what we're all collectively trying to figure out, right? It's definitely an investment for a lot of people, albeit a risky one. But at the same time, any investment can be risky. By the way, this is not financial advice, but it could be more. It could be a lot more. Yeah, and it is more right now in El Salvador, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's legal tender there. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. I kind of geeked out on that. And, you know, there's a lot of critics that say crypto is going to enable dark money on the dark web and money laundering and it's for criminals and that kind of thing. But, I mean, if you take a look at the history of Deutsche Bank or HSBC. <laughs> HSBC. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of money laundering there too. So I'm of the opinion that the more transparent your ledgers are, the harder it is to money launder. Yeah. So, I mean, there's still this question though. With, with any sort of change, there are some who win, there are some who lose. And Mm -hmm. so who will be the winners and losers and how will this affect our society? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll cover that. To what degree will this affect our society? I I think we're going from a, you know, traditionally centralized uh, banking system and banking policy to a decentralized one, assuming cryptocurrencies really start to take off and more than they have already, right? We're we're still in the early stages of -hmm. this fundamental transformation. Well, and this is the thing is some people are talking about this as being transformative and others, it seems like other times it just seems like another investment. And so Mm -hmm. I guess that's the question is, is this just another place to put your park, your money and earn some interest? Or is this something that is fundamentally transformative? Well, I think it all depends on how you look at it and how 
some of these technologies, especially blockchain and smart contracts, are being applied. And there is a lot of opportunity. And I think for people who are willing to get in early, because it is still relatively early-ish for cryptocurrency investing, there's still a lot of opportunity. So to get this started, we talked with one of my good friends, Alejandro Algueta, who is the owner of the software firm Requisite. And he's been a crypto enthusiast since 2017. And he has a lot of experience around investing in crypto and Bitcoin. And he uh, also uh, leverages it, all these different interest rate opportunities and pays for goods and services with cryptocurrency. So to get started, we chatted with him on what this is all about. So for the first few years, it was more of a hope that eventually I would be able to spend it somewhere. Um, so at first it was mainly, you know, like any other trading, just to try to earn some money. But with where, where it headed very quickly was partnerships with like Visa and MasterCard, where you can actually get, a, they're like ATM cards. They're not credit cards. They don't show up on your FICO. You have to preload them sometimes, but basically you can load up your card from your crypto portfolio and then spend it anywhere Visa or MasterCard is accepted. So everybody accepts crypto when you look at it from that point of view. And so, yeah, I started using that probably a few, few years back as a means to kind of buy toys and fun things. Because, you know, I was pretty much like most families didn't have a lot of extra cash on top of, you know, my regular job. So what I would do is whenever the market would be up, I'd go buy something to make sure that I actually took some tangible thing home. Because what goes up will eventually come back down. And so instead of just watching it go up and down, I made it a point to take my profits in the form of things that I can use, um, you know, day to day. So this is really interesting to me. I feel like so many people are trading cryptocurrencies, uh, but they may not actually be using them the way that you, you know, is this, would you say that this, uh, this means of putting them in a Visa or MasterCard, is this service widely taken advantage of or are most people just in the trading? A lot of people don't realize that cryptocurrencies is a misnomer. Not all of them are meant to be money. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different categories of these tokens. And so as I learned more about them, um, I learned that one of the, the, the new initiatives was called uh, DEFI, uh, DEFI, I think it's pronounced. But it, its goal is to provide a lot of those banking services that you normally have to get approval for based on your credit, loans, interest, like savings accounts. And that, I think, really was a game changer because you are now getting paid interest anywhere from three to even a hundred percent annual, some compound daily, some compound weekly. There's all these different opportunities out there and they don't require any kind of, you know, financial status. I mean, that was one of the goals is to provide these services for anybody in anywhere. So at first, no one did it. I remember I had a friend of mine who did not want to invest in crypto. He's like, well, you can't spend it. I was like, well, I'll show you we can spend it. And so I we went to the store and I logged into my crypto account and I transferred money to my card and I walked up to the register and I bought something and he was blown <laughs> away. He's like, I had no idea you could do that. <laughs> and as I, it's, you know, I don't do it that often because I'm also a long-term believer 
in the technology and the products being built. So, you know, if I were to sell, you know, $100 worth of Bitcoin now, that might be worth $1,000 in five years. But at the same time, um, you know, I want to buy some things that I can use now and not wait five years. And so I tend, that's why I tend to do it when the market goes up because I get, get the maximum value out of that transaction. And then when the market goes back down, I buy back the cryptocurrency that I sold to get my products. And I end up, you know, sometimes saving money that way because, you know, maybe I sold when it was, you know, a thousand dollars, bought something that was worth a thousand dollars. But then, you know, like we just had a downturn and crypto went down almost 60%. Well, I bought all those uh, tokens back. And so really I paid $400 for that, (laughs) you know, asset. Um, So that's how I'm using it to get physical things like on a day-to-day basis. Um, There's also now a lot of promotions going on. So I know with like crypto.com, for example, if you buy $4,000 worth of their token, they will give you a ATM card. Um, they pay you 10% on that $4,000 while they hold it, much like a savings account. But they also uh, will reimburse you for Netflix, Spotify, uh, Amazon Prime, uh, Admiral Club at airports. So you still have to pay for those things. But if you pay for it using their card, they then reimburse you that same value in their tokens. Um, so I haven't paid for Netflix or Spotify in eight months. Uh, it's basically been free. So I'm also saving money that way. Because it's a reimbursement program with their, um, you know, with their card. So you load up the card with you know, a U.S. dollar value and you can spend it anywhere that, that I think it's a Visa or MasterCard, anywhere that card's accepted. So I set up my Netflix payment and my Spotify payment to use that card. And then what happens is crypto.com will actually reimburse your trading account with the equal value in their token. So for example, I think the Crow token, which is theirs, is I think right now around 11 cents. Um, so it charge, you know, I pay the $15 or whatever it is for Netflix, and then they will give me $15 worth of Crow. Now, I believe Crow is going to go to a dollar over the next few years. So not only am I paying for my Netflix and Spotify that way and getting it reimbursed, making it free, but I'm also accruing more of their token, which over the long term could go up to next. So I'm hoping that happens. Wow. That's really fascinating and really cool that that you're sort of working all the angles and taking advantage of all these different options to maximize your your position in the crypto markets how much time do you spend in a given day doing this work because it sounds like you got it is there a lot to keep track of it varies um i'll admit like for the first few years i was actually spending three or four hours a day trading um but that was also because i was trying to learn to be a swing trader it was part of what i was trying to do but like this year, for example, I've been busy growing my own business and, you know, spending more time with those same toys. Like I actually bought a pair of jet skis this way. So taking my kids huh. out to the lake and doing things with them um, like that. And my portfolio has grown enough to where the interest alone is making me about $1,000 a month to where I'm not, I don't know, maybe 
half an hour a day now, maybe less. That's so that sounds smart. So, you you know, speaking of this, I feel like when I look at crypto, I see something that swings wildly and investors are often scared of that kind of fluctuation. Yet people still invest in crypto. What what allows crypto investors to overcome their their fear of those or their concerns about those those fluctuations? I think everyone will probably have a different reason. You know, some people maybe be more of a gambler, like, you know, they'll go to Vegas and spend some money. Other people might believe more in, in the technology. Uh, for me, uh-huh. as an engineer, I believe that blockchain is a pretty cool technology. And whether we succeed as a currency or not, I do believe blockchain is going to have, is going to be around for a long time. And, um, so again, I think it, it it's all about, you know, how much belief you have in the system or what your goal is. But, I mean, look at AMC or GameStop or any of these mean stocks that are getting pumped and dumped as well. I think in any market, um, you know, other than like government bonds or things like that, you have those same risks. Uh, so I also think it's just a point of view. I think when crypto gets pumped and dumped, it gets just a lot more negative press than, say, your traditional stocks. So you mentioned a bunch of coins in this episode. For people who are just now getting involved with cryptocurrencies, what are some currencies that you would recommend them to research and look into? What are the top ones? So I think, at least right now, the hot spaces for me are any of these DEFI tokens. Obviously, everyone should do their own research and read about them. But any anything that's offering financial services, I think, is going to do very well. And then the other ones that I'm looking into a lot are like Chainlink, Polygon. Uh, I think the, another one is, I think it's Synthetic. It's SNX is the symbol. But they, they are all about kind of improving the infrastructure and making it not so expensive, like I said, to do these transactions and kind of making this whole blockchain ecosystem more efficient. And I think that's going to lead to what I think the next wave that we're going to see on top of that is once they make the kind of infrastructure efficient, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of products similar to when the smartphone came out and then, you know, no one had, no one built web apps. But as soon as there was an Apple store, everybody built web apps. So like Coinbase has already announced they are working on the Apple store of crypto. And I believe that's going to be the next wave that comes after this financial service wave is the infrastructure will be in place. It won't be as expensive to build products. And then you're going to have these established entities like Gemini and Coinbase that have the approval of like, the you know, they have legal approval. They're following the regulations and they're going to build, I believe, ecosystems similar to what we've seen with Google and Apple, but on top of blockchain. Mm-hmm. So. You know, this term DeFi, what does that mean? I mean, I, I've obviously looked it up, but can you explain what decentralized finance is and how some coins interact with it and some maybe more than others? Yeah. So, again, I'll try to do my best. But, for example, there is a product called Celsius. It's an app. You can sign up for it. They don't allow you. You can buy, but you cannot sell. Um, it's more I, I tell people it's like a savings account. And what they do is they allow you to deposit your other assets at a, at a certain interest rate. And so, for example, I have probably about 80% of my assets sitting there earning 10%, 13% interest. 
Um, that's actually one of my plans on how I'm trying to remodel part of my new house is we took some of our extra cash and we buy stable coins. And that means it, you know, it stays pegged to some kind of currency like the U.S. dollar. So a dollar is a dollar. It doesn't go up and down. But these, uh, you know, DEFI services are paying eight and a half percent. So that beats me putting it in my savings account in a regular bank. and because it pays out weekly, you know, every week I get a deposit and if I want to spend it, I can move that over to my card and spend it. So what we're starting to do is we're actually looking at uh, taking like regular loans out from banks and stuff where, we, you know, I do get approved. Um, but then trying to make, you know, to deposit more into the Celsius to offset the interest I'm paying on the loan. And I'm just trying this out now for the first time, but if it works out, I'll probably, you know, cover 50% of one of these remodels I want to do over, you know, the life of the 10 years will just be covered from the interest payments. And so I, I'll have paid half of what I, half of what I would have paid through traditional financing. So brilliant. I love it. Fascinating. Can you imagine the amount of opportunity and, and spending power that could be opened up if people started um, sort of doing what you're doing here for, for the, the various spending that you've got going on? It's just I feel like people haven't even scratched the surface of the possibilities. Well, most people don't understand finances, and it's why the people with money keep getting richer because they do. They know how to make money work for them. They know how to avoid taxes. They know how to avoid interest and they know how to get interest. You know, they become their own banks. They provide loans. They provide this stuff. And you had to be rich to do that. Um, these, these loan products aren't only about getting money. You can offer up your assets as collateral to loan out. And so now you're the bank. I mean, anyone could be a bank and make interest with their extra cash. It's, it's quite amazing. Oh, wow. That uh, I really love Alejandro. He puts all of this into such manageable pieces for you. And he's been doing it for so long. So he has a great way of explaining it. And it almost seems like I love what he said about Celsius, because it sounds like it's even it's like an exotic bank account. <laughs> I remember. And, you know, it, we're getting it's similar to, you know, when I was in college, there was a, a banker was trying to sell me on a five percent bond that I should get into. And I'm like, I'm in college uh -huh. and I'm like, I don't, I don't have a hundred dollars to tie up for five years for 5%. <laughs> and, but you can't even get those anymore. And your bank, uh -huh. your bank isn't giving you any interest on the money that it's storing. And they're making tons of profit by lending out your cash. And they're giving you absolutely no benefit. In fact, they're going to charge you for it. If you have too many transactions. Yeah. You know, and this is what's interesting to me. Because this isn't just about using crypto as some novel form of money. It's about being an asset that you can loan out. It's, it's essentially making each or potentially making each user its own bank. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the three ways to make money in this reality. Be your own yeah. bank, real estate, and right. own your own business. That's really how people make money these days. But, you know, I mean, banks and, and banking being done by a very small select group of people is something that's been... a sort of a fundamental feature of capitalism, or even frankly, pre what we would think of as modern capitalism 
So when we, if we were to make this shift, you know, if this is what's coming, what are the big picture ramifications of this? I you mean, know, like for me, I think it has a lot of advantages. I mean, if you're able to be your own bank and you can have you can lend out your capital and you can gain interest that also I mean, cryptocurrency provides people with the opportunity to do all these things, lend, save, borrow without having a bank involved. Think about how many people in this world are unbanked. They can't get a bank account for whatever reason. Those people are left outside the economic system. And then, of course, it's removing the middleman. So you can do business directly with companies. You don't have to go through a third party like a financial institution to, to do your transaction. And it's instant, right? How often do we receive a, an HSA payment, ACH payment, excuse me, and it takes like three days to clear? What's the bank doing with that money? It's an antiquated system. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you're taking the, the, the monetary policy out of the hands of politicians, and putting it into the hands of communities who pool their funds together and vote on how it's going to be spent. Uh, you know, I think that that idea of there being um, participatory ownership of the rules, you know, of the monetary policy, I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this whole thing. And I'm still not sure where to put that. You notice I said, by the way, participatory instead of democratic, because it's not like one person, one vote. It's like one dollar, one vote. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like something like the sort of the shareholder democracy that we have right now, mm -hmm. where if you own enough stock in companies, yet, yeah, you know, your vote becomes meaningful. Mm -hmm. If not, you just, I guess, show up to a shareholder presentation where you have 0.01% of the vote or don't. <laughs> but I think still having this community make the rules is... It's, it's a really different way to go about things. Yeah, I think, you know, somebody I was doing when I was doing my research, someone said, you know, this is a financial system designed by software engineers, not by politicians and bankers. Because mm -hmm. remember, and now everybody has their own vested interest, right? But through the vast majority of human history, those in power have sought to remain in power. And you can do that through monetary policy. Now, granted, there's been some fantastic improvements to monetary policy over the past hundred years that have really opened up the financial system so that more people can participate, own homes, get loans, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all great. But what excites me about cryptocurrency is this concept of decentralization. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's definitely more decentralized. But, you know, hey, just to point out, decentralized systems also have can also have systems of oppression and hierarchies within them. So, you know, you know me, I'm, I'm constantly trying to look around the corner, see what's happening. But I think for that, we really, we really do need some experts. And fortunately, we've talked with one. Yes, her name is Laura Shin, and she's the senior editor at Forbes. And she also runs the Unchained podcast. And she's the author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Crypto Craze. It's a great title, by the way, for a book. Anyway, let's hear from Laura. I talk with everyday people about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. I, I realize many of them have a very um, common misperception about them. They'll say things like, they'll talk about Bitcoin as a stock. Or um, for instance, they'll say that Ethereum is a startup or um, you know, they'll, they'll kind of attribute more traditional organizational um, uh, characteristics to these crypto networks. 
And the key point here really is that when I say that they're decentralized, what I mean is, you know, they're truly leaderless, right? Um, you know, I mean, you could say, okay, Ethereum had the co-founders and it has the Ethereum Foundation, but at by this point, we can all probably safely say that if the Ethereum Foundation went away, then Ethereum would keep going. And a good analogy here is to think about how gold is an asset, but there's no like single gold CEO or gold, you know, there's no like gold company that is kind of behind gold making it valuable the way that Facebook, the company is making Facebook stock valuable. Um, so what we have here is this industry that's built up around gold, right? And it's the same with Bitcoin. It's the same with Ether, where there are many, many interested parties. And yet um, the production of Bitcoin and Ether as assets is decentralized enough that, you know, nobody can shut this down. Like, like every once in a while I hear people saying, oh, the government's going to shut down, you know, such and such. And I'm like, hmm, okay, you know what, they'd have to get every single computer hooked up to the internet and make sure it's not running the Bitcoin software or the Ethereum software, because that's the only way you're going to shut them down. So this decentralized aspect is what's important. And, you know, Bitcoin at this moment has a more than $1 trillion market cap which that puts it in the echelon of, you know, companies like Apple and, uh, you know, Google probably. I don't, I don't actually know. It's not that many Tesla. And so to do that without a CEO or a board or, or any C-suite that's hiring all the people and, you know, making sure all the different functions are, are being performed. And it was just this global leaderless kind of movement and network where people were incentivized by the, structure of the of the the incentives built into the coin that's amazing and what i mean by that is you know bitcoin like you know any other previous similar attempt to create a money for the internet was eminently hackable and so that you know that's a real concern but with bitcoin you know as i mentioned since there are new coins being minted every 10 minutes who gets those coins do you know you no, don't know. You okay. don't. That's so the whole point. Have you heard of Bitcoin miners? Do you know what Bitcoin miners are? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Bitcoin miners are the people who they want to win those new Bitcoins being mined every 10 minutes. And what they do is they hook up their computers to the network. They're running the software. And by doing that, they're making this so they're they're making the network stronger and more secure and less easy to attack. And but they're not doing it. It's not like the IT department where, you know, they're given benefits and, and a salary or whatever. No, they're doing it. They, they do this because they want to win the new Bitcoins. But the Bitcoin network gets the benefit of this added security. And so it's literally just the way the coin is structured, the incentives built in. It's getting all these people around the globe to perform this service for the Bitcoin network. And Ethereum is a similar way. The, the way the coin is structured, it it incentivizes people to contribute to the network. It's the same with these decentralized file storage networks. If you have spare uh, storage space on your computer, you can hook it up. You can earn coins for providing storage space on your network. There's no CEO driving this. They're not hiring you to do it. It's just like, you're like, oh, you know what? I could earn money if I hook up my computer to this by offering storage space here. And so this decentralized business model, I think is what is really revolutionary. And it's so fascinating to me. And this is, 
why, like, you know, if we look at kind of previous cycles of um, technology and, and um, uh, uh, these kind of boom and bust cycles, obviously, you know, Wall Street finance was a big one. But where did that value accrue to? to the people who worked at those companies, right? If you look then at the next wave, like Silicon Valley and, and big tech, where did the value accrue to? To the people who had the most shares in the cap table, to the VCs, right? Small numbers of people. This is how we have all these billionaires, this big uh, gap between the rich and the poor. With crypto networks, I mean, anybody can join in, if you, especially if you get in early, right? Like, like you start contributing to the network, you get in when the value of the coins is low as you contribute to the network. And hopefully if the value of the network increases, then the value of your coins will increase. You don't need to have, uh, you know, good contacts on Sand Hill Road or, or whatever it might be. And so I actually can say I have many sources who are people from developing countries who have had their lives changed from things like NFTs, not even Bitcoin, it's like even things as recent as NFTs and, you know, like, you know, big, big, <laughs> just think if your net worth really goes from nothing to all of a sudden, like a, just a massive amount. So, um, you know, it's very fascinating space, but I, I, yeah, I feel like this, this shift for the model where it goes from kind of this startup to these crypto, sorry, user owned crypto networks is in my mind, it's, it's a profound shift. Before we get too far down the rabbit hole, you mentioned NFTs a few times, and I'm not sure that we have properly defined it. So could you uh, give us a quick primer on what an M NFT is and how is it different from a coin? Yeah, so an NFT stands for non-fungible token. And um, the reason it has that really clunky definition it's because, so if you think about, so it, it, here's, here's the thing about crypto, pretty much anytime anybody wants to explain anything, they just go right back to Bitcoin because pretty much everybody knows what Bitcoin is. And so it's like easy to be like, well, you know how Bitcoin's like this. So this new thing is different in this way. So with Bitcoin or pretty much any cryptocurrency or crypto asset, um, all the, the coins are fungible with each other, right? It's not like you're going to discriminate against one Bitcoin versus another, right? They all have the same price. I mean, well, yeah, well, there's a spectrum because it is true in certain countries, the price can be higher or whatever, but, but let's just, you know, not get into the nuances there. Um, so a non-fungible token is one that, like I said, is not fungible, meaning it's unique. And so um, a good parallel would be something like um, baseball cards, like trading cards or um, a unique artwork or um, is something, you know, signed and original, like all those types of things. And there's sort of like different classes of NFTs because there can be these kind of unique ones that are just one of a kind, but then there, there can also be series. So it could be like, you could have NFTs that are tickets to, um, a specific event or Kings of Leon, the band did a series of NFTs in the spring and um, the most expensive ones were the ones where, and I think they only offered six of them, were pairs to their concerts for the, the rest of their lives. And so, of course, you can see, you know, those, those would be uh, the, the most in demand. Um, and then the ones where many people could, 
could do them. It was just, you could get the NFT, the album as an NFT, which by the way, I did that because I'm a fan of Kings of Leon. And I was just like, wow, something that I actually like in my real life plus crypto, I'm, I've got to do this. Um, so, so NFTs, now have been adopted by a lot of creative types because they enable creators to have direct relationships with their fans and monetize that relationship in a way. So right now I feel like we've barely scratched the surface, but there's many different styles. People are getting super creative. I mean, you could do, um, yeah, all, uh, people are doing it like they'll, they'll sell an NFT and it's, you know, for an hour of time with with them. <laughs> so there's all kinds of things that you can do. But yeah, that's what makes them different from uh, crypto assets. So this, this is all fascinating stuff. So we, you know, we have this deflationary aspect. We have this, you know, the decentralization is, is a very big picture thing. That's very, it's, it's been, a, you know, it, it has these broader societal implications that are fascinating. To get back to the, the core benefits, I can see the benefits here for security. Obviously, this makes it more secure. People will buy into crypto. You know, what are, what are the what are the real benefits to the user of this? A couple of things. So, so we're already seeing that people um, are incentivized to offer these different services. So another really good example is there. Have you heard of DeFi? Yes. Oh, okay. So that's decentralized finance. And um, these are protocols uh, similar to like, you know, the protocol for email or the protocol for browsing the web or, you know, whatever. Um, but these are protocols for borrowing and lending or for conducting exchange. And so if you think about it normally, how, how in our normal financial world, how do we do borrowing and lending? It's like through a bank or through, right there. You know, um, and so like, many people is, are shut out of that. Yeah, or, or like um, the the one on all the websites, like Affirm or whatever. You know, you can do your payments across four or pay, buy something across four payments. Um, those are all companies that are offering those services. But with DeFi, these are protocols, and everyday people can put up there. So let's say I have some Ether or you know what any other of these crypto assets, I can put it up there. And I, people can borrow um, or, and, and so I can lend, or I can even basically give myself a loan. Um, this is a popular way to um, basically give yourself leverage. This is what people are doing. They are, for instance, putting up Ether or ETH, and then they are able to mint themselves what's called a stable coin. Uh, which basically, typically, it's just a coin that is pegged to the value of a fiat currency. So for instance, the US dollar, it's the most common stable coin. And what they do then is they use that stable coin to buy themselves more ether. So they're, they're, they're leveraging their ETH position. Like it, it's basically like, you know, a, a, a a leverage long position on ETH. Like if they really believe it's going to go up, this is what they do. Of course, you have to be very careful because the uh, collateral to debt ratio is like a certain amount. So if you dip below that, then you can be liquidated. It's, and then, you know, we've had times in crypto where there've been a ton of liquidations and it causes these massive gyrations in the market and kind of um, things just start breaking and people lose a lot of money. Um, et cetera, et cetera. keeps a lot of people out of the whole experience. <laughs> right. But what's fascinating about this is, you know, they are doing this with them. Like I said, it's like making um, 
a deal with themselves. They're using this smart contract to create a financial arrangement with themselves. You know, it's, it's totally different. It's like, from, it's like being your own bank in a way. Yeah. Essentially. Basically one of the best ways to make money in this reality is to be a bank, which is why you see all of these services trying to get people to split their payments over four um, right. payments, right? Cause you can get the, you can charge interest on that. Right. Yeah. But now they um, can do this without paying this middleman. I mean, of course they're paying interest rate to the protocol. Um, but then there are people on the protocol who make money by, um, so, so when a liquidation happens, you can be one of the people to ensure that the liquidation happens at the right time. And then you can actually make money for offering that service. So there's kind of like all these different actors and, you know, so here I am describing all this. The key thing is, of course, if the coin or the crypto network is not structured well, then things won't work out well. And, you know, the coin may not appreciate. And there's all kinds of things that, that could, I'm just talking about in, in an ideal world, this is what would happen. But, uh, you know, there are plenty of crypto networks where what they call the crypto economics or the tokenomics are very poorly done. And so um, actually the, the value of the coin doesn't rise or, or you can't, it doesn't incentivize people to do things that they want them to do. Or, or there's like weird um, perverse incentives that result in, you know, bad other results that they didn't, uh, you know, foresee. So, you know, I just want to let you know, I'm talking about the ideal situation. Yeah. Yeah. This is all really fascinating. And, and I feel like sometimes, um, people are afraid to, to dive into cryptocurrencies because it is so complex. There's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a completely different world to learn, to, to navigate. Right. And, um, and then of course it's very volatile people, people see the ups and downs a lot and, and that can make them feel nervous. Um, and then we hear a lot from certain uh, voices that claim that, you know, crypto is, is dangerous because it's for the black, it's what the black market uses and you don't want to get involved in that. So I'm, I'm wondering oh. how, how much of a, a problem is the black market really or how much of that is just um, certain powers that be trying to keep people from adopting crypto because it won't serve the banks as well? So Chainalysis is a company in crypto. They do blockchain forensics, which means that they um, kind of track a lot of the transactions happening on various blockchains. And then they kind of figure out like what's going on, um, you know, in terms of activity. And they have a lot of government contracts. They help organizations like the IRS and uh, DOJ and other other governmental organizations, as well as I'm sure other types of companies looking for that information. And their most recent report for 2020 says that it was 0.34% of all crypto transactions that were for illicit activity. So it's less than 1%. And uh, the other report that I found, I believe it was the IMF, and it said that two to 5% of all uh, transactions in the traditional financial world are, uh, criminal activities. So, you know, it's multiples more in the traditional financial world. And so it's kind of funny that the reputation, which I think really stems from those early days where a Bitcoin's rise really came from Silk Road. I think that that reputation is stuck, um, but maybe not necessarily um, based on the reality. However, what I'd be very interested to see is the report 
for the 2021 activity, because as we all know, this year was a huge rise in ransomware involving crypto, right? Uh, Colonial Pipeline, I, I forget all the others, but there have been so many. So I'm wondering now what that will look like for, for this year, but we that re- report probably won't come out for another like nine to 10 months or however long. Um, but even then, it probably hasn't risen enough that it would um, you know, get to, to where the traditional financial um, world, the, the, the criminal rates are there. So that was kind of fascinating to me. I, I do think the perception right now um, is not in line with the reality. Yeah. Thank you for that, because I, it makes sense, right? I mean, honestly, if you have a system where um, there are so many checks and balances that uh, you can't hide transactions, then it would seem to me um, it's much harder to launder money through crypto. Yeah, well, you know, th- this just goes back to misperceptions. I think a lot of people do think it's anonymous or that they can hide. And um, law enforcement kind of loves the fact that it's quite public and actually you can track everything. So, um, <laughs> yeah, hilariously, um, so there's uh, this woman, Katie Hahn. She, used to be a federal prosecutor in uh, the San Francisco office. And um, she had, she had done other things earlier in her career, but at a certain point she was kind of doing a lot of financial crimes and she got a tip off that there was a federal agent who was stealing bitcoins from the federal government when it was doing its Silk Road investigation. And she actually thought this is probably unlikely. And so she went out to disprove the tipster and not only figured out that this person was correct, but, and this is the fascinating part, since they could see what was happening on the blockchain, they suddenly realized, oh my God, we have two people stealing money from the government because the the way the money was moving from what, like it was so the one person's behaviors was it was just completely different from the other person's behaviors. And so then they actually came up with a second federal agent because if I remember correctly, it was like one was being very cautious, like, you know, moving to multiple different wallets and spacing the transactions in different ways. And the other just like moved it all in one go, like kind of didn't care, you know? And, and so they realized, oh, these are two different people. So yeah, it's very fascinating. (laughs) So, so then tell me if this is, is Crypto is, is obviously has the security advantage. How is it able to be used for these large ransomware actions like Colonial Pipeline? Why is why has crypto been the currency of choice for or the means of choice for these ransomware activities? So before cryptocurrencies existed, you couldn't do this with normal money because there was no way to send money online without it going through the banking system, which has, you know, what's called know your customer control. So you give um, personal identifying information. Of course, fraudsters all the time give fake information, but still, um, you know, there was like a system in place, right? But on top of that, the banking system has, um, you know, things like chargebacks. Like, so for instance, you probably are aware that when you do a transaction, it doesn't settle for quite a while. And if you are ever part of one of those, um, like, uh, what are they called? Like a, like a coupon reward or, or a reward thing. Uh, like, like, uh, you know, my Apple card has like a cash back thing, but I don't get the cash back until a long time later after they're quite sure that I'm not going to return it, that I'm not going to dispute the charge. It's like three months or something, but with crypto, 
there's no bank you can go to and be like, can you, can you send the money back to me? Right. Because it's just this decentralized network. There's nobody in charge of it. It's just the decentralized miners. They're just processing the transactions. So once a criminal moves that money or, or if, once you pay a ransom, then the only way you're going to get that money back is if the, if the ransomware attacker sends it back to you, you know, there's no bank you can call and be like, can I, can I get that money back? No, it doesn't work. Cause crypto is like cash. It's just digital. And so, yeah, I mean, there, although weirdly, I don't know why, just probably because the wide world of crypto is so crazy. Sometimes there are hackers that actually do send some of the money back, which like, it's just bizarre. But anyway, the point is I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if that's happened to ransomware. I don't remember, but, um, but that's why uh, ransomware attackers like crypto is because the transactions are irreversible. And on top of that, by the way, in terms of what I was saying about the know your customer situation, the vast majority of them are kind of Russia based. And when Biden went to Putin about this issue this past summer or, or spring or whatever it was, Putin, I, I don't remember the exact response, but it was essentially like, I don't care and I'm not going to do anything about it. You know, so that's another reason. I've got one more question uh, related to this. As we're seeing this weeding out uh, and this process that's just going to take care of itself, you also have politicians and lobbyists who are looking to have their own influence on this space, either through taxation or regulation. So from your perspective, knowing as much as you do about this market, where should they put their focus and where should they leave well enough alone? Oh, wow. Um, hmm. That's so, okay. And when you say that, do you mean legislators like Congress? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Regulators, policymakers, legislators. Yeah. The SEC, maybe governments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Okay. Yeah. This is a, a hard question for me because as a reporter, I try not to, you know, like influence what's happening. And so in that regard, I, I probably don't have so much of an opinion, but I will kind of lay out some of the different viewpoints uh, in the space right now. And so probably the main frustration I hear from entrepreneurs is that there's a lack of clarity around what regulation is. But then on the other hand, um, we have a lot of Congress people who are really interested in this technology. Some of them are uh, people you know with backgrounds in technology who seem to understand it. And what's fascinating to me is that Th that group actually, it is actually quite bipartisan. Um, the one thing I will say about, you know, about Senator Warren's remarks is it does seem that the Biden administration in general maybe is uh, more on the pro-regulation or or at least not not creating new regulations to adapt to this technology. And so in that sense, like there are some people in the crypto community who feel that Democrats are maybe less friendly, but then, you know, you've got people like Andrew Yang, who, I mean, I granted, I know he just left the democratic party, but he was a, a big proponent. We have a lot of other democratic, um, candidates and, um, governors and, and Congress people who are very pro crypto. So, um, my personal view probably is that eventually I think they'll realize that being against crypto and blockchain is sort of like being against the internet because it's just a technology. And I don't, I, it, to me, it doesn't make sense that it would um, be a political thing. Um, so I have a feeling once people kind of understand it better, that it will probably be, like I said, it just won't end up being um, something that neatly falls along partisan lines. 
Let's hope so, because anytime they can use something to create, to get people out to the polls, create a political issue to get people to, to, to you know, it, agitate the base, they, both sides will try it. And I'd like them to keep their hands off of crypto personally. You know, it's already kind of, like you said, decentralized, autonomous. That's the whole point of it, right? Yeah, but, but you know, the, uh, what I will say in the regulators' favor is they are correct in that there are a lot of scams in the space too. So, you know, it's a good thing that they're there and it's a good thing we do have the regulations and uh, they're able to do their enforcement actions because yeah. there's been plenty of that going on. Of course, so. of course. <laughs> yeah. Just like Deutsche Bank has been laundering money for eons and HSBC, <laughs> oh, we could go on. Um, yeah, yeah. Or the pyramid schemes, you know. Stock like, market <laughs> crashes in the previous century from lack, lack of regulation, yeah. Boy, all this talk of financial regulation has reminded me that we forgot to say something at the beginning of the, this episode. This is not financial advice. You should not go out and buy anything based upon what we talk about in this episode, unless you were already were going to. But we claim no responsibility for any of that because this is a podcast where we talk about cryptocurrency as an idea and about the big picture. We're not giving you investment advice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We don't do that. Do your research. Only do invest research. what you can afford to lose. Yes. All investment comes with risk. <laughs> there's no free lunch not even in crypto (laughs) well and you know and i can appreciate regulators and policymakers looking to bring more quote-unquote protections to this space because people maybe don't always make the best uh, choices and we don't want millions of people losing their shirts and their livelihoods And their savings, you know, in the crypto markets, because that could have massive ramifications for economies. Um, Yeah. And even though, you know, we have these systems set up within cryptocurrencies where the monetary policy is, has, you know, been sought up set up oftentimes in some thoughtful ways and where you have community, you know, some degree of community input on that. I, I still expect the regulation to be an iterative process because, you know, like any new development in the financial system, it seems like the first time you don't always get it right. I mean, I'm thinking about things like stock market crashes historically mm-hmm. and how they're just needed to, you know, they were really painful learning moments where it's like, okay, we need to make some tweaks here. Yeah. You know, there's some things we need to do differently. Yeah. And, you know, but, but regulation, yeah, I think that kind of regulation is inevitable. The question is, I guess, with crypto, is this will come from the inside or the outside or both? Or I think it depends on, on how threatened the existing financial system feels uh, with crypto. Bankers with imposit- who have the ears of, of people like Elizabeth Warren and others, you know, may be able to sway politicians towards their advantage uh, in the guise of protecting the investor or the consumer. And yeah, you know, the centralized banks also have their own uh, digital currencies that they want people to adopt. So they don't necessarily want you to adopt Bitcoin or, or others that are not uh-huh. under their control. Right. And and wait, doesn't China have its own crypto? It does. Currency? And it also kicked out all the miners because <laughs> they did <laughs> the one two punch. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, the story is that all of the energy use for cryptocurrency mining was giving, making it difficult for China to maintain its emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions policies and reductions. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> we're going to talk about energy later on in the show. I, I, I'm having a hard time with that. One. <laughs> I'm wondering if this didn't have more to do with the creation of the digital yuan <laughs> and like the fact that, you know, China likes to be, they like to run things in their economy. You know, it's not a hands-off thing there with the government mm -hmm. and industry, as we've seen recently. Mm -hmm. But anyway, let's talk about a nation that has adopted crypto as legal tender. Let's talk about El Salvador. Yeah. Lisa Ann, you've done some research there. What's going oh, on? Oh, yeah. I can't wait to share this information with you. It is fascinating. So El Salvador became the first country to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. That happened on September 7th, 2021. People are calling it B-Day because it is so monumental for the cryptocurrency space. But the law still maintains the U.S. dollar as a national unit of currency as well. So it's a, so it's a parallel currency is what's happening here. But people are mandated to accept Bitcoin, and uh, they set up a, an e-wallet to operate U.S. dollars and Bitcoin. They set up 200 new Bitcoin ATMs, across the country so people could withdraw their Bitcoin into cash. Side note, they also took a $600 million loan from the Central American Development Bank to roll out Bitcoin. So I find that a little <laughs> ironic, but uh -huh. anyway. And so also to encourage the use of the Bitcoin, every qualifying citizen got $30. So you set up your e-wallet, you automatically get $30 to use. And obviously there were some challenges with the rollout and the e-wallet, you know, it was so popular that you couldn't download it because it just kept crashing. And so that, you know, the rollout of the app and the, uh, the, the logistics uh, was a challenge, but all that stuff is, is getting smoothed out. And there's automatic conversion from Bitcoin to U.S. dollars that's allowed and it's uh, funded with a $150 million trust fund, basically. So there's that big chunk of money that is always available to convert your Bitcoin into dollars. Wow. You have any questions? Because I got a lot more to say. But <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't really know where to start. Well, back in September of 2021, 70% of, of Salvadorians uh, were opposed to this. So it's not all, mm. you know, roses and lollipops over there, but, Part of that is just sort of fear of the unknown, uncertain about how am I going to use this new thing. And they did they did pilot this in a, a small community before they rolled that out to the whole country. And and there's some pretty principal reasons why El Salvador did this. So back in 2000, they abandoned their national currency because of hyperinflation and devaluation. And they they adopted the dollar, the U.S. dollar as their currency. So El Salvador didn't have its own currency. It was piggybacking on the U.S. dollar. And many Salvadorians saw the process of dollarization, as they called it. They thought it basically, you know, ultimately benefited the banking class and the elite because of this big income disparity and declining wages followed as they adopted the dollar. And, you know, El Salvador's got public debt of about it's estimated to uh, escalate to 95% of GDP by 2026. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of incentive for El Salvador to try something different because nothing else has been working. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we'll see how this works, right? I, you know, El Salvador, we, the rest of us have the benefit of being outside and seeing how well, you know, the Bitcoin, Bitcoin does take off in El Salvador. But, you know, one of the things that occurs to me is uh, this is a, a developing nation where per capita electricity use isn't very high. You know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of poverty there. And Bitcoin takes all this energy to mine. I mean, even compared to other cryptocurrencies, it's really an energy hog. Mm-hmm. Well, and El Salvador is, um, they get, I think, 20% or more of their energy from geothermal because they have a lot of active volcanoes. And uh-huh. actually, they're setting up a Bitcoin city. This was announced um, a little while ago. And they're going to fund the building of this Bitcoin city with bonds, with Bitcoin bonds. And it's going to be powered. The miners are going to be powered by geothermal energy and they're going to, you know, build shops and restaurants and airport and public transit. It's going to be this whole big thing. But what I think is really interesting about El Salvador and why I think other developing nations might adopt cryptocurrency as their as legal tender in the future is remittances. Mm. And the $400 million of annual commissions Western Union and MoneyGram extort. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Boy, there's a case. Now there's, there's a case for going to crypto. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're dependent on these wire transfers, I mean, those things are just yeah, legalized robbery. I mean, it's it's amazing how much they charge, especially for poor people. I mean, you have people who are often at the bottom of the economic ladder in the United States working their tails off so that they can send money back home to El Salvador. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And 23% oh, 23% of the nation's GDP is dependent on remittances. Yeah. And if you think about it, these people are typically a Salvadorian might travel a long way and wait for hours to receive their money. And out of a $100 transfer, you may only get $92. Yeah. So these predatory wire transfers and and also even just traditional bank commissions, you know, you, you don't have that with Bitcoin. You have a lightning network instantly anywhere. Anybody in the world can send you money at any time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it still amazes me. I spent a bunch of time working for German companies and I would get paid via wire transfer and it would take days. And it's like, wait a minute, we're in the 21st century. We can send messages automatically, but you're telling me that I have to wait three business days to get this wire transfer, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, no, I, you know. And who's earning interest yeah, on your is, money while it's sitting around? Exactly. Exactly. This is a sector ripe for disruption mm-hmm. because they've really been, they've really been milking this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that disruption yeah. is coming to Texas as well. And you talked a lot about how China kicked out all the cryptocurrency miners. Well, they're all coming to Texas huh. because of the cheap power. There's a lot of wind power there, but there's just cheap power generally. Laissez-faire regulation. And you probably know more than I do about how ERCOT is one of the largest deregulated energy grids. Oh, yeah. Um, and they're getting, you know... Yeah. 10-year tax abatement and sales tax credits. And, you know, Texas is really courting the crypto miners. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Texas is an environment where you just haven't had a lot of regulation. It's actually, it's funny because it's made it easy in a lot of ways to build renewable energy, but then they did things like, you know, put up wind turbines without de-icing packages. Now, that's not the cause, that's not the primary cause of those blackouts that happened in February. It was mostly fossil fuel plants by a more than three to one ratio, but the wind turbines also failed, and it's because, you know, again, lack of regulation. So, on one hand, it made it really easy, on the other hand, whoa... But I can see why that would be attractive. Cheap power, not a very high real, highly regulated environment. I could see that why that would be hugely attractive mm-hmm. to Bitcoin miners. So while we're on Texas, let's talk about energy use. Because obviously, so, so here's the thing. You know and I know that Bitcoin, that cryptocurrency's total energy use globally is pretty small. I think, what, point half a percent equivalent to the energy draw of like Sweden or Malaysia, you know. But if we continue to ramp up the size of these currencies, if these become the dominant currencies, it's not going to be a small amount like this. You know, and I think that's where a lot of people's concerns, I think that's where there are legitimate concerns about the energy use, again, particularly for some of these hogs like Bitcoin, is that if we were to ramp this, this would be a substantial amount of power usage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's some interesting things that could be implemented around a demand reduction programs and treating mm-hmm. crypto miners like a battery storage technology that you can ramp up and down immediately um, as the utilities need to curtail power during peak demand. So I think there's some opportunities there, but there's also a lot of challenges. Right. And we want to make sure that the energy that these miners are using is as renewable or low carbon, low, you know, low, low emission as much as possible. And and it sounds like there may actually there be some really interesting synergies. Mm -hmm. And for that, let me introduce our next guest. We spoke with John Paul Barrick. He's the CEO at the mining store. So tell me, what is the mining store? What do you guys do? So we are a cryptocurrency mining company that deploys and runs mining facilities, but also helps customers and clients enter the space and deploy their own facilities. Um, I started Mining Store back in 2016 when I saw the opportunity that Ethereum presented with GPU mining and that a GPU is a graphics card that most people have in their computers. And so I actually went to my uh, I, one of my uncles and my grandma, and my parents, and was like, let's put together $100,000 and I'll put up $15,000 of it and let's buy all these graphics cards and mine this digital currency called Ethereum. At the time, Ethereum was only a couple dollars and we were mining close to 500 Ethereum a day. And then very quickly, that operation you know, continued to, to generate revenue, make profits. And uh, the mining store started as a way to sell extra equipment um, that we had in inventory or that we could buy to other people who wanted to get into cryptocurrency mining. And so are you only just selling the equipment or are, also, are you also managing crypto mining for customers? Well, we now have um, expanded to managing designing facilities for customers, buying energy assets and operating those energy assets, 
um, selling their cryptocurrency for clients, hedging the hash rate exposure. So almost a full suite of solutions needed to run and operate mining facilities from a facility that is at a stranded natural gas well in Wyoming or a facility that is uh, hundreds of megawatts at solar and wind farms in Oklahoma and Texas. That's awesome. So I guess the question people might ask is, why is a service like yours needed? Why don't people just uh, mine their own Bitcoin? Why do they need you? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I would say the answer is it's really easy to run one or two computers, but it gets really hard when you have to run hundreds or thousands of computers um, where a firm like ours steps in and we bring the infrastructure expertise, the operational expertise of running data centers and having run them since 2016. And then also the ability to enter and exit the market and buying this cryptocurrency equipment. It changes rapidly in price and can fluctuate based on the market. And so we help advise clients on when to enter and exit and also manage their positions of computers uh, that have that value and are generating income on a daily basis. And we wanted to chat with you because of the work you're doing uh, that's really interesting around energy use and the creativity that we saw on uh, in some of your projects. So you know, when it comes to this high energy use of mining cryptocurrency, you know, that's in the news a lot. Um, you know, Elon Musk talked about it, et cetera, et cetera. But um, with so many of these sources of energy demand, why has this kind of thing struck a nerve? You know, it's, I don't know necessarily why it stuck, struck a nerve, but I think it's just the easy thing to pick on for Bitcoin. You know, energy usage um, is inherently, you know, viewed, a lot of people view it as a bad thing. But in reality, not all energy is created equally and not all and you can't actually store energy effectively. And that's why they say that Bitcoin's energy usage, the fact that it uses energy and uses a lot of it, even though it's less than like 0.0, I think 5% of the world's supply of energy, um, that the fact that it uses energy is a bad thing. But I would say that it, it, it actually is a feature to Bitcoin and it's not a bug. And how we work with not only the energy companies to make their lives easier, to make the community's lives easier, is, is something that's super granular. And I'm happy to jump into that. So one of the first examples I'll give is a site in Grundy Center, Iowa, that we own and operate and build out in 2019. Now, this facility is participates in something called a demand response program. And that is where the utility during six months out of the year can tell us to shut off when the grid is getting to a high capacity or it's hitting something called peak demand. And so when peak demand is occurring, that's usually happening in the winter during the summer, in the winter in the morning and during the summer in the afternoon when everyone's turning on the air conditioning and everyone wants to use their power. And we want to make sure that people you know, are warm and people are able to cool their house when they want to and that we don't have to turn on dirty energy like natural gas plants or coal plants to meet that demand for everyone who wants to turn on their power. And so what we do as a Bitcoin miner, we're very unique in the fact that we can consume hundreds of megawatts of power, which is thousands and thousands of homes with the power every day, which allows them to build more renewable generation to support those machines, more renewable energy to, su to support all the Bitcoin miners running, but right when they need the power back during those six months out of the year, we turn off everything. We turn off all of our servers. And what that does is it effectively gives back the grid 
anywhere between one you know, to 100 megawatts, depending on the size, the amount of servers we're turning off. And as I mentioned, that prevents them from turning on these coal plants or these natural gas plants. And so that is some of the equilibrium that most people don't see. And the reason why Bitcoin miners are so unique is that you can't turn off an aluminum smelting plant. You can't turn off a semiconductor facility but you can turn off a bunch of computers running in parallel and we get paid every 10 minutes. So for us to turn off during a period, we're not going to lose a ton of capital. We're only going to lose that 10 minutes or that hour of work when we were down while making sure that no, I guess what you would say, you know, dirty energy is being turned on or has to be turned on to meet the additional demand. That's fascinating. Uh, And I have to say you, you, that's one of the most, articulate and easily accessible explanations of these issues. I, I work in electricity and you did a much better job of explaining that than most people do. But let's let's step yeah. back a second here. In terms of where crypto is currently being mined right now, when we think about the geography, um, how do local conditions affect what energy sources power our existing fleet of crypto mines? Yep. So right now, most cryptocurrency, I would say about two months ago, was mined in in China, and then they turned it off and banned it. So right now we have the biggest migration, I think, of infrastructure the world has seen in the the 21st century, moving tens of thousands of megawatts, which is millions or tens of millions of homes worth of energy usage Bitcoin mining devices to Europe, to the United States, and to other areas. And so how we are working on migrating this is we're finding stranded energy assets. Those assets that I mentioned that are built by renewable energy developers that are, they're, they're, in, they're in two situations. One is they're built in markets where they can't actually get the energy to the big cities where it's needed. And the local community just doesn't need that much power. That's the first place they're built. And the second place they're built is in areas that are transmission constrained. And so generating power is one part of the problem. But one of the biggest parts that is, is overlooked and isn't really incentivized as much is the transmission lines and transmitting the power, which means moving it from the generation source to the consumer in the bigger cities. And so these energy assets are curtailed, and some of them are curtailed so far with it's not profitable for them to, to actually generate power after their um, their federal tax incentives are completed. And that happens about after about 10 years of a project's lifespan. And so we went ahead and we started looking at projects that were wind and solar farms that didn't have, uh, that ran out of their 10 year lifespan and talk, started talking to them about using their energy when they didn't need it or using their, buying their power from the wind farm directly and then using the grid to supplement when the wind isn't blowing. So these sites are 70% to 80% renewable energy directly from the wind farm. And then the remainder is substituted by the grid. And that allows us to get extremely low rates, but then it also allows us to take advantage of these stranded assets where no one was using the power and it literally wasn't even able to like be put on the grid. It had to just be grounded in the ground or the turbine was spinning and no power was generating. And those are the, you know, the worst things for a power company. So tell me, what's the next big trend in cryptocurrency mining? The next big trend? Well... I think the next big trend is is building out uh, large amounts of capacity in the United States and abroad for all these miners that are being dislocated by the the Chinese government. And that is going to do a lot of useful things. I mean, to the U.S. economy, we're talking about thousands of transformers being produced in 
tens of thousands of electrical components being produced, um, tens of thousands of electrician jobs um, wiring up all of these uh, infrastructure. As I mentioned, one megawatt is about a thousand homes worth of power. So we're talking about just in our pipeline, at least a half a gigawatt, which is 500 megawatts in, in, in electricity. And so these are electricians that have to wire up every single one of these plugs and outlets. Um, our, one of our facilities at a hundred megawatt site will probably have 25 to 30 full-time staff and those staff members will run a 24-7 operation, taking different shifts. And that is a huge uh, job increase and boost to these areas that really have been hit hard um, with, you know, the, the, they only really have farming and now renewable energy has moved there as well. Uh, so we're hoping to bring more high paying IT jobs to the, these local rural areas where the mining sites are built. And how much of this, how much of crypto mining do you think in the future is really going to be powered by renewable energy and how much of it will be sort of um, still using fossil fuel legacy systems? Great question. I, mean, I think at the end of the day, the Bitcoin mining is going to improve and increase the renewable energy adoption because it allows for more production of renewable energy assets and steady consumption of electricity, which renewables, their biggest thing that's hindering them, especially wind and solar, is the intermittency problem and the duck curve with those renewable energy assets. So Bitcoin miners help provide that steady consumption. Also, I think that you know the nature of Bitcoin mining being the fact that it is a zero-sum game and that um, you know, everyone is competing for the same amount of Bitcoins every day. It means that energy providers or Bitcoin miners who can find energy that is the cheapest will win at the end of the day. And so the cheapest and the cheapest energy we have access to is energy that doesn't require a fuel source. And you know, those fuel sources are coal and natural gas. Um, and that's the reason why um, I think Bitcoin miners long term are going to use renewable energy, nuclear energy, hydro energy, because there is no fuel cost. And at, we are very uh, profit driven or driven by just economics alone, because our industry doesn't have any subsidies. It doesn't have the banking support uh, that regular in, in energy industries do or regular producers of assets do. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting area. Well, is there anything that we didn't ask you that you think is important for our listeners to know about cryptocurrency mining and what you're doing? Yeah, I would say that, you know, cryptocurrency mining is providing the opportunity to allow people to put computers to work for them. Uh, one cryptocurrency mining computer can can generate close to $880 a month in, in revenue right now. Um, and so one example of, of that is, you know, if you if you have assets, um, for example, like my my mom had some Bitcoin and we're going to take like eight, six to eight of her Bitcoin and lend off of it and buy some Bitcoin miners and have those miners generate cash flow. Now she's a teacher and she happened to get, buy a little bit of Bitcoin early on and has held that Bitcoin for the past you know six or seven years. But now this generating this asset, this a Bitcoin that she's going to lend against and get a loan on, she's going to be able to buy about seven to eight Bitcoin miners. And those eight <laughs> Bitcoin miners are going to be able to pay her $5,000 a month. I mean, that's wow. more than she's making wow. as a teacher. And yeah. it's super important that people realize that they can put computers to work for them and not necessarily have to go to a job every day. And that's part of the reason why I'm so excited about mining store in the future and being able to provide this amazing asset class that has steady returns because we know what how many bitcoins are going to be produced and are is just using electricity to to mine this cryptocurrency and put it to work for people all across the world 
through through mobile apps and through the ability to enter into this space with, with by reducing the friction required and also by providing financing. You know, now we can get financing for local businesses in the Midwest, and the loans are great now. It's like sixty months, five percent interest. You know, before this industry was like the loans were uh, two years at fourteen percent interest, and just in one year, we have local banks willing to support uh, the, their communities and willing to underwrite loans to cash flowing businesses to get into cryptocurrency mining, which is a huge. Uh, you know, I didn't think we we're going to be here this as fast as we got here. I love how like I wouldn't have thought the cryptocurrency. Uh, mining and energy would intersect so directly and the future of energy, you know, and crypto sort of, sort of dancing together, I think is, is really fascinating. So thank you very much. I appreciate it guys. And yeah, I think yeah. the future of these two uh, massive industries dancing, as you mentioned, is, is only going to continue. Uh, Michael Saylor likes to say there's never been a hundred billion dollar network that has ever gone to zero. Uh, that's in the existence of the world that's on the internet. And I um, don't expect Bitcoin to continue to go down. I think that we see the, the the price and the momentum of how many smart people are working in this space is only going to grow. And the uh, the ability to use Bitcoin as a free financial system is, is growing and hoping to put that in more people's hands every day. So being able to use this otherwise curtailed renewable energy, that's a really great win-win. You know, that's that's something that it speaks a lot to the potential of this technology. But still, when we talk about levels of energy use, you know, to go back to that, like it's it's still clear that we cannot scale with the current level of use per transaction, that this is just not going to work. And and that's true, like I mentioned early, even for something like Ethereum, which I think uses a tenth of the energy per transaction that Bitcoin does? It's expected to when they go to the proof of stake model versus proof of work. I think ah. I think right now, Bitcoin requires 707 kilowatt hours of electricity, while Ethereum requires 62.56 kilowatt yeah, hours. Yeah, I think that might be before they move to proof of stake, because I think there's ways that they're going to further, I recall... That's proof, the quote I gave founder. you is proof of work. And then when they go to proof of stake, it's a massive drop. So like you said, it's almost like one ten thousandth of the current requirement. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So so clearly there are ways to do this. You know, it, it just we're just it's we're not there quite yet, which is good mm-hmm. because you know there needs to be a way to do this again for it to scale. Mm-hmm. And Ethereum is um, completely reprogramming its software to move to proof of stake because they recognize the energy. It's not sustainable. Yeah. And the energy is, is a big problem. It's not scalable. Uh, right. And so like Ethereum is this, it's a blockchain platform. I hope I'm describing mm-hmm. this properly. If anybody thinks that I'm doing it the disservice, you just let me know in the comments or send us an email at earthlanespodcast.com and I will, <laughs> I will make my apologies known. But uh, so Ethereum is really all about these smart contracts and, and, and these, which are these you know, blockchains and it is enabling all these other applications. And, and so this is why you see all these tokens. There's, I think there's, there's 200 of the top tokens and then there's just more and more every day. And, so let's get into that, mm-hmm. you know, because I feel like we've been dancing around blockchain, which is the underlying technology for crypto. You know, we've talked about crypto, this new, asset to form of money, whatever thing that it is, but blockchain can be used for so many other things. 
you know, I mean, I, I'm familiar with it from my previous work in energy, from peer-to-peer -peer energy trading, also potentially for supply chain emissions tracking, but apparently it can even be used to validate identities for voting. I mean, maybe blockchain is the fundamental innovation here, but Lisa Ann, you've been reading more, you've been getting more into this. Tell, tell me, what else can blockchain do? Well, I think you rattled off all the big ones, right? So right now, blockchain is... So for people who... To, just to reiterate, so the blockchain is a series of transactions and, you know, multitude of computers all completing the same transactions, the same puzzles, what have you. And through that, you have the transparency because the ledgers all have to match. And so we're, so we're doing this for money transfers and financial exchanges and lending and smart contracts, right? All this stuff is happening now. Loan processing could be faster. You could possibly get better rates because it would be less expensive because you don't have to go through these middlemans. You might actually actually be able to get a loan if you couldn't. And of course, insurance uh, is going to reduce uh, duplicate claims. Uh, you might get your money faster. Uh, real estate, it's going to speed up those transactions, reduce paperwork. That's going to save you money. And then, of course, you said voting, which I find very exciting. I've always thought, why can't I vote on my phone? Like, why do I have to show up in person to write something down on a piece of paper or push a button? That's ridiculous. It's I should it's be able to so vote by like the internet. It's century, isn't it? Yes. But of course, yeah. oh, there's all those fears. Oh, if it's all digitized, then, you know, it's ripe for fraud. I'm like, uh-huh, sure, fine. But with blockchain, it's all transparent. Even if your vote is anonymized, and so nobody knows exactly that it's you, you it's much more difficult to do fraudulent activity, if, if it even happens, voting twice or voting when you're not eligible or having the votes tampered with at the end of the day. Now, granted, this does happen, but not to the, just like my personal soapbox is not to the extent that certain political parties think it does. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've definitely heard that <laughs> bogus thing. Um, yeah, I mean, the real election fraud is, is you know, curtailing people's ability to vote, mm -hmm. making it so hard, difficult to vote that people don't vote. And so people uh, have to, when they have to work, they can't take, and they can't wait for hours oh, yeah. in line, like you reduce oh, the yeah. voting. Like you're reducing the voting location, polling locations so that there's a big long line and not as many people vote. Imagine if you could just wake up on voting day, open up your phone, boom, 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 and go on with your day. Well, actually, you know what you can in Estonia. <sighs> Estonia does eat. I mean, of course, of in course. Estonia, though, all the government stuff is online. Right. And, you know, you have other countries like Australia where it's mandatory that you vote. You have to vote. Right. So you know, all these other countries, they part of their societies function on broad citizen participation. It's almost as though our system is set up so that everybody doesn't vote. Hmm. Hmm, oh, and a... by the way, we could do a whole episode on Estonia and their electronic government. So yeah. that, you know, maybe coming in the future. That could be cool. FYI. Yeah, let's, let's earmark yeah. that one. I like that idea. We've already and... interviewed an Estonian a few episodes back. But anyway, back to block back to blockchain. Uh, more practically, because um, like voting is like really far into the future, but supply chain logistics, I mean, that's a low hanging fruit for blockchain. Medical records and artist royalties. I mean, think about all the challenges artists have getting paid for the royalties that they are due. Imagine if you could bring transparency to this and take the power out of the hands of the record companies and the ISPs and Spotify's of the world and put it into the hands of these lovely people who are creating such beautiful art. 
uh, whether it's, uh, you know, fine art or music or movies or whatever, right? So I think blockchain offers a lot of opportunity to digitize, not just digitize things, but create access to secure data at lightning speed. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, blockchain's only been around for like a dozen years. Like it, it's the opportunities well, haven't even really been explored yet. That, that's what I was just thinking. I'm like, okay, so blockchain is basically this brand spanking new thing. It's just come out. We've already figured out that we can use it for all these different things. When this really gets going, what are we going to learn about blockchain in terms of its benefits? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, there are those who say that this is, this is part of that. I, I'm wondering this can be part of this shift to Web 3.0, you know, where that further decentralizes the entire network. Yeah. See? I often wonder if the 21st century is going to be the century of decentralization. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I, I, so when, I, when I'm feeling positive about the world, that's why I feel it's, it might be. When I'm feeling negative about the world, I'm like, and the powers are just going to smash it all and climate change is going to come in and economy is going to be destroyed and there's going to be, you know, 150 million people left on the planet. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know, th- we're looking at a messy, a messy future of, yeah. of multiple, you know, a, a lot of different, all of these trends interacting, you know, here we've already talked on this show. We've talked about blockchain and crypto. We've talked about the future of energy. We've talked about electrification of vehicles. You know, we're getting into what life is going to look like with heavy, with serious degrees, a centigrade of climate change coming, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to find out what multiple trend lines crossing at the same time look like. And it's going to be different. Of course it will be different. And and I think there's a lot of exciting things like next year, who knows, you might have a couple more uh, countries adopting cryptocurrency as legal tender. I mean, yeah. everybody's watching El Salvador. So Argentina, Nicaragua, Panama, all these governments around the world that have been struggling to grow their economies and saddled with debt and, and facing inflation and, and corrupt politics and the remittances. There's remittances. Well, I, I'm betting I'm right now I'm putting money on the next country that adopts uh, some form of crypto being one that's highly dependent on remittances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's where my money is right now. That's where my actual real money. Well, <laughs> <laughs> my money's just pixels anyway. So, you it's know, true. It's what's true. the difference? <laughs> yeah, and you can it's always not make like more it's it, backed right? by silver. Right. You know, and we're getting what I find ironic is that we're getting back to that. So there's these stable coins, USDC is backed by the US, it's staked to the US dollar. And I think PAXG is what it's called, is aligned with the gold, value in gold. So we're kind of, you know, Nixon took us off the the gold standard. And depending on who you are, you think that was a great idea or a terrible idea. And then we've had like, you know, inflation and- We can't do this episode yet. Hold on, Lisa We have to get into macroeconomics another time. I'm going to have to come at you with some modern monetary policy, okay? We're on, okay. We're on, we're on crypto right now, okay? Let's, let's not get into this. Which is a deflationary currency, I'll just say. Yes, and for the rest of you Earthlings, it's been great having this conversation. We look forward to your comments in the comments section below, your ideas. I'm sure many of you know more about this subject than we do, and we're all learning. And we will see you again on another turn of this big, beautiful blue-green space flower we call home. 
Take care, Earthlings. 